0: So Rabbi Rami, thank you so much for for joining me. I wanted to start by asking you about Shabbos.
1: Okay. I had
0: this uh, I had this experience uh, maybe a month or two ago, where I, so I th- I think maybe you and I have uh, slightly similar backgrounds. I grew up modern Orthodox, um, and then moved very much away from that. Haven't been practicing for 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 a long time, um, and. I woke up from a dream, I was having this dream about being back in the neighborhood where I grew up. And uh, I was visiting the uh, bakery that would be bustling, like, you know, Friday afternoon in preparation for Shabbos. And I walked in there and yeah, everyone looked at, around at me, like kind of like, what are you doing here a little bit? But I was just really enjoying the the energy and and the atmosphere of it. And, and I woke up, it must've been like three or four in the morning, with this like longing in my heart for Shabbos. And, you know, I've thought about this a little bit. I mean, I, for a while I've been an advocate of Shabbos and like considering like, if you would say, you know, that Jewish people have been, you know, successful in, in some kind of way, like a curious question to me is that perhaps the practice of Shabbos, celebration of Shabbos is one of those reasons for the success. Cause it just makes so much practical sense, maybe in today's world more than ever to stop what you're doing, to have a day focused on, on rest and prayer. I'm curious what you think about that.
1: So, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that, but first let's talk about your dream. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, no, I mean, I, I mean, you associate it with Shabbat, but yeah, you know, I'm I'm very interested in dreams. If that were my dream, right? Because that's how you should do these things. If that were my dream, and you're right, I also come from modern orthodox background. Um, I would associate. I, I would. I would talk about. Okay, I, I feel this. My unconscious, my sub. Yeah, my subconscious is telling me, I'm. I'm looking for some. I need to go home in some way to find some sustenance. Now, that's the bakery. Now, you didn't mention challah. That's what I thought you were going to say, that, you know, <laughs> the, the Shabbat bread. But, you know, you're looking for something to help fill some kind of void. Not that I'm saying that uh, what you do at Yogaville isn't fulfilling. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Uh, or that, you know, yoga tradition isn't enough. But it does sound like there's a part of you that is yearning for something uh, tangibly Jewish. So I wouldn't let that slide so easily if you, you know, I don't know what you want to do about it, but I wouldn't let that slide. I to To, to shift over to Shabbat. So I absolutely agree that Shabbat is essential or was, let's say, essential to keeping Jewish people Jewish, I think. I don't know if that's still true, only because fewer and fewer people actually do it. And of course, what does it mean to do it? There's so many different ways of doing it. But but for me, Shabbat is, especially in, in our time, and in and for since the, the capitalist you know, revolution, if you like, but Shabbat is countercultural statement. Uh, Challenging the whole capitalist mythos that you are what you do. You are what you own. You are what you have. And you have to earn a living. I hate that phrase. Mm. You know, you're born, you have a living. The question is, what do you do with it? You don't have to earn it. That sounds Mm. very, well, it is sort of Calvinist to me. You have to earn it. You know, you don't, but you were graced with it. So what do you do with your living? Well, for most of us in the Western industrialized world, we work for a living, that is my living, I work. So I'm trapped in a sense, in the crushing capitalist wheel that's grinding us all up. You know, I'm exaggerating, but I think you get the idea. And, but then with Shabbat, one day a week you go, hey, I don't have to do this, I can stop. You know, I think I'm being controlled by the machine, but oh, sun went down on Friday night. I can make a decision not to do this anymore and to step out of that whole cycle of, of that, that whole phenomenon of earning a living and just being for a day. Eric Fromm, the psychologist from the 20th century, right? Wrote this great book, To Have or To Be. And the work week is all about having and working to have more. But Shabbat is all about just being. And I imagine that connects to yoga. I think, you know, in, in, in asana, you're really, you know, trying to reach the same state. If you're working at the practice, if you're working at the pose, you're not probably going to get much out of it. But once you can just settle into it, surrender to it, then something can happen. The same thing with Shabbat. Now. What do you do for the 25 hours of Shabbat? So I grew up, and maybe the same with you. I grew up, you go to shul, you go to synagogue. You have to pray. I mean, our services started six o'clock in the morning, and they just went on and on, and they repeated themselves over and over. I mean, it never appealed to me. It absolutely just left me cold. But you could fill the Sabbath with, in a sense, religious work, you know, um, going to synagogue, praying, doing all those things. You could fill it with all kinds of negative obligations. Don't turn on the lights, don't turn on the television, don't use electricity, don't drive the car. You could do that also. But for me, taking that one day a week to free myself from the, the mentality of earning a living, for me, the Shabbat is about play. So I may study, but I don't study for a goal. I'm just reading a text, learning about something for the joy of learning about something. I take a walk, but I'm not going anywhere. You know, I'm just walking for the joy of walking. I don't go to synagogue on Shabbat. I don't go, I mean, I could say I don't go because there's no synagogue within 40 miles of my house. And I don't like driving on Shabbat, so I don't want to drive there. But that's not the real answer. Even if the synagogue was next door, I probably wouldn't go because I find synagogue services pretty bland and and not to my liking. So I prefer to meditate on Shabbat, like I said, to walk on Shabbat, to free myself from having and to just celebrate the fact of my being. So in that sense, Shabbat could be for anybody, regardless of your
0: Tradition. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of things that you that you said that I'm curious about the power of them permeating all of your life, not just you know a single day of the week. And those two things were being and play. The importance of these two things, and maybe I'll, I'll ask you about play to 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 start. I'm curious, like do you view this experience of being alive as playing in a game and what is, what is the importance of plays is, is, is living through the lens of play. Is there something holy about that? I think there is. And I don't,
1: I, I didn't say a game because game then sounds e- either game sounds like it's not really serious or game sounds like I got to got win or I could possibly lose. I'm thinking of play as, unstructured, non-competitive, there used to be something called. Okay, now I can't remember their their motto was um, play hard, play fair, nobody hurt. And it was, boy, I can't remember what the name of the company was, or the movement was back in the 70s. Anyway, the idea was they taught you to play non-competitive games, they were team sports, but there was no winner or loser you really had to work with the team to play the game. So for example, there's the parachute. They were these giant parachutes and you need the whole team to hold up the parachute. And then they throw all these balls into the parachute. And the idea was to keep the parachute bouncing, keep the balls bouncing by waving the parachute up and down. And you all had to work together so the balls didn't fly out. So it's non-competitive play. and. You couldn't really lose. I mean, if they all fell out, you put a back, in and you did it again. The fun was being in a circle with the parachute and watching the balls go up and down. So that's what I'm talking about—non-competitive play, just for the. That's joy. what I'm talking about too. Yeah, yeah, just for the joy of movement, and you know, just that kind of thing. I think I'd like. Okay, let's. I want to be as fair as possible. Well. I'd like to think <laughs> that my spiritual practices are all play i do a lot of uh mantra japa i do you know silent sitting i used to do it to win right so when i was a teenager in my 20s actually even into my 30s i was practicing primarily in a zen tradition but practicing zen buddhist meditation and i was trying to win i was trying to be the buddha i was trying to get enlightened and eventually and it's a whole side story with my, my one of my teachers, but eventually I stopped, I gave up the idea of winning and it just became, I like to sit, I like to breathe. Mm-hmm. I like to repeat these mantra and that's all I'm gonna do. I don't care if I get enlightenment uh, out of it. It's, it's, I, don't, I no longer have a goal, I just have a practice. And that to me makes the practice more like play. I hesitate only because I feel bad when I miss, you know, a session like which is very rare. But if I for some reason I don't get to recite the mantra, you know, in a formal setting like I normally would, I feel bad about that. If it was pure play, I probably wouldn't. So there's still some echo of you got to do this and this is important and do it this way and you know like that. But primarily I think I'm hoping my spiritual practice is going in the play and playful direction. But then I would say, um, more philosophically, that I think spiritual practice at its best is play. Religion at its best is play. It's theater. Mostly I find it bad theater, but it's still theater. It's it's play in the third sense of the word, of going to a play uh, or being in a play, participating in the ritual. There is just something very compelling about it that becomes all the more rich when we take the having out of it and just are present in it
0: with it as it.
1: I don't. I don't know if I'm making sense.
0: But. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. It, what I hear a little bit is that you know the the metric perhaps is is just what feels good. Is that, um, is that a important uh, direction to move in? To investigate, just like what it, what, what, or could that get me in trouble? Just investigating yeah. what, what feels good?
1: <clears throat> I'm a little hesitant to say that my feelings should be the, the metric mm-hmm. just because I can't control my feelings and they could lead me astray. And, you know, sometimes I don't feel like doing it. I, that must, I'm trying to think of a time when that was true recently and I can't. But I, let, let's just assume that there are some days when I just don't feel like doing it. And yet, I I'm happier when I do it, even if I didn't feel like it in the beginning. So there is a discipline, I guess, also to the to the play. But yeah, feelings just seems a little shallow to me, unless we want to define
0: it in some. Well, in some yeah, I would. Chal- I think I would. Chal- I would challenge that a little bit because. So you've had experience previously where perhaps you didn't feel like doing something. And then you move through that and did it and then had a positive experience, which I would say was a good feeling. And so you have this information in your past
1: okay, to nice.
0: inform, inform your future, right? And maybe I see it as the, the feelings and the mind working together, right? So I have the feeling, I'm not kind of this, you know, I, I understand, I use my mind in a way that maybe is is productive. To reflect on my experiences in life and say, you know, I might have an impulse to do this, but is it going to lead to, you know, that? That's my deeper question: is like, you know, the sustainable feelings. I can even, you know, talk about, you know, selfishness versus selflessness, right? And I'm very interested in the subject matter because I think if you really dive into what is selfish on the level of what feels good, you know doing harm to someone else or stealing right i would say is not selfish because ultimately you know that's not pleasing to the heart that that doesn't feel good and when you do some a kind act something of generosity if you reflect on the way that feeling feels i think that would be more selfish in the truest of ways hmm. i mean that's a clever you know twist on on selflessness and selfishness
1: but I, but i th- i think i get what you're saying about about feelings you're not talking about impulse you're not talking about whim Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're talking about something much deeper. And in that, I would agree with you. That there's a sense, now I haven't been to Yogaville in a long time, but when, when you walk into the Lotus Temple, when I, like, I don't know about anybody else, when I would walk into the Lotus Temple <clears throat> and take a cushion and sit on the floor and just be there and watch the lights coming out of the center and going to all the different traditions, there was a, I would say, a confirmation of what I think is true, but an affirmation of what I know is true, that there's this one light manifesting in all these different uh, traditions, let's say. And that, even if I said, oh, I don't want to walk down there, you know, if there was some resistance, you you know, from like you just said, from memory that if I do walk down there, The walk itself is beautiful and that will begin to shift my, my mood, but then stepping into that space has every time I've done it, I've had the same, you know, positive reaction. So the memory of knowing that's what I can expect will, will bring me to that deeper sense of, uh, you know, to to a deeper feeling than just impulse and "Ah, who wants to get get out there. So 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 I think you're right about that that there is a place for feelings in in that in that sense. Uh, I mean you could also say if you're experimenting with different practices uh, I mean I I'm not a prayer praying person. You know I don't like picking up a, a prayer book whether it's the book of common prayer or the Hebrew prayer book or you know whatever it happens to be. I'm not someone who enjoys prayer. Uh, I enjoy invoking the divine mother through, you know, chanting her names, but I don't like praying in some kind of didactic way. So I don't do it. It's just, it never feels good. Uh, and I and I take the feeling part, just the way you're saying, as a, oh, a I don't know, a sign that this just isn't my way of practice. So. Do I really want to spend time doing something that doesn't feed me? And Now you could talk about selfish in that sense again, that that doesn't feed my soul, that doesn't lead me to that deeper sense of joy and presence, Um, just because it's traditional or because lots of other people are doing it. Yeah, I just, I love doing communal acts of devotion, maybe you'd call it. But I like doing it myself in the community, but silently, you know, uh, so alone in community rather than, let's say, praying out loud together. Or the worst kind of prayer for me is um, responsive reading, which is a little odd because I love kirtan, which is similar than call and response, but that's music. When, you know, when someone, the leader reads a line and then the congregation reads another line and then the reader leads a line and I find that tedious, <laughs> and I and I can't. I mean, I, especially during COVID, when you're wearing a mask, I didn't even bother
0: pretending.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> ah, what I hear a little bit, and I want to ask you about is is freedom, the importance of <clears throat> freedom. You know, I had a, an experience I've heard you speak about as well of, you know, the doing the rituals growing up. There was really nothing behind the rituals and that's how i felt too is like you have to do this you need to do this um the message was not being offered to me to explore and see what you like and if you like it you know continue on doing it the freedom wasn't wasn't emphasized and yeah i'm i'm just curious what you have to what you have to say about this is it is it because we fear you know giving other people freedom and and so because we fear um offering them freedom we we try to put people in a container and kind of restrict them and 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 from my perspective it's it's clearly been proven now that that doesn't that doesn't work too well right it's like the freedom seems essential that for people to to come to the discoveries of truth on on their own to not be that doesn't work to to force them that you force them and they feel restricted and confined and then maybe burst out in kind of rebellion um yeah, I, I would I would say the freedom
1: is nothing the way we're talking about it. It's not that they're afraid that if they give you freedom. That you'll find the truth They they and by they I mean, the whoever that whatever the clerical powers are who set the limits and say, oh, you're you know, you're a Brahmin. You have to do this. You're a Jew. You have to do this. Those people are afraid of you not doing it and not. I mean, it's all about power, control, and money, so about not being part of the community and not being you know, financially there for the community, and I don't mean the community of, of people, I mean the religious organization, institution. There's a fear that if they didn't put you in a box, you'd walk away because there's no meaning to it. What I missed growing up, and, and I couldn't have articulated this back then, but what I missed growing up was meaning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I would do this stuff because my dad said, this is what we do. And out of love for my father or my mom, that's what I did. But it didn't mean anything to me. Now, some of the things that I did then because of, you know, just loyalty to my parents, I continue to do in my own way. But I do it because I find meaning in it. So I grew up in a kosher home. We didn't eat certain things. I never missed it. You can't miss something you've never even tasted. So it's not like I missed bacon. I never had bacon, never even occurred to me. But I didn't eat bacon because Jews don't eat bacon. You know, you don't do that. That's what I was told. Okay. But as I grew up and and I grew out of that system, I could eat bacon, except I discovered that I really can't not not just because i'm i'm have these echoes of my dad going no bacon no pork it's because i no longer eat meat i realized that what if you go back into the bible and you go back into rabbinic literature to look at the dietary laws that i think when you read them they're designed to make meat eating incredibly difficult i mean mm-hmm. the original diet in the book of genesis and the early parts of genesis is all vegan and then after the flood story, and I don't take any of it as history, but after the flood story, people are allowed to eat meat because that's the, the ground is saturated with water and you can't grow anything. And whoever wrote the story was very perceptive and said at that moment, when the people started eating meat, the animals changed their relationship to people and began to fear humans. And I don't want any animal to fear me. And I don't want to eat any animal. I guess I haven't had meat in I don't know, 40 years or something. Um, so I don't eat pork. I don't eat bacon, but not because there's a rule, but because I've reached this level of awareness that says, you know, eat as lightly as possible. And that to me uh, at, at the moment means, you know, don't eat, don't eat meat. I do eat some fish. So, I'm not perfect. But um, the, the restrictions are coming from the inside, not not from the outside. And what I'm looking for when I'm practicing Judaism is what's the meaning of the practice. So like we started with Shabbat, what's the point of Shabbat? To me, the point is to move from having to being the point of kashrut is to Elevate kosher is to elevate all of my consumption. It's not just food, it's everything, to the highest ethical and environmental standards I can muster. And you can go through all the Jewish things that I do. There's a meaning behind it. The mitzvot, the practices, are vehicles for something beyond themselves. But, and this may be true for you too, the way I grew up, they were the point. They they weren't pointing at something else. They were the point. It wasn't the finger pointing to the moon. It was just this is the finger, and this is what we do. And there was no moon, and that's what led me I don't mean to go on here, but just to wrap that up, that's what led me outside of Judaism uh, into Buddhism, into Hinduism, because Judaism was circular. It was this you're a Jew. this is what Jews do in order to be a better Jew. It never got outside that circle, and I was looking for something. That would take me outside the circle, so you can't, you know, you, you practice yoga, you practice uh, nama japa, you whatever, whatever it's going to be. It's in a tradition, but it's ultimately designed, I think, to take you out of a tradition into reality. Or mm-hmm. that's a little dualistic, but maybe you get the idea. And the way I was raised as a Jew, there was no out, there was no point. It was just a circular: this is what we do, this is what we do, and. The reason for doing it is because you're a Jew. I didn't sit, that wasn't enough for me then or
0: or now. I love what you're sharing around meaning, finding meaning. And I'm wondering if the freedom is the prerequisite for the meeting. It seems to me that you allowed yourself the freedom to investigate what you, what you believe, where you find meaning. And then now you're, you're able to um, explore, you know, mm. what is meaningful to you. But I, I, I'm wondering, you know, would it have been possible for you to not have allowed yourself that freedom or for many people to mm. not give that to them, themselves? to so like, okay, I'm free, I get to decide. That's, that I think is a big step, right?
1: That's a very big step. And you don't become free, you are free, Hmm. right? You can choose to do something with your freedom, like deny it and say, well, I, I can't do that. I'm a Jew and this is what Jews do. And so I'm in the box forever, but that's a choice. People don't necessarily recognize that, but that's a choice you make. You're free to make that choice or you're free to become something else altogether. You know, a humanist, an atheist, a Buddhist, a Hindu, whatever, a Muslim, a Christian. Um, you start from that point of freedom and then the society and your parents try to, you know, whoa, don't be that free. Don't, you know, try to keep it down, but you're free from the beginning. And the the question is, to what extent do you want to act on that freedom? And part of that freedom is to look for meaning. Part of that freedom is to look to other traditions. I mean, I didn't make a conscious, well, I guess you could say I did make a conscious choice, but... To, to experiment with other religions, but I found myself um, in, a, in a situation where that was possible. So, I mean, I had two teachers in high school who had gone to India for the summer and came back and taught what they understood about Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism, and Confucianism. Um, you know, how they got the Chinese in there with the Indian, I don't know, but that's, that's what they did. And I took the class because I love those two teachers i didn't know anything about what they were doing so maybe that was karma maybe it was you know whatever but um when i was introduced to those things then i made a conscious choice to to exercise my freedom and look into those things more deeply even though my my family was not supportive of that um, and i think everyone has that choice Up you know there's limits uh, that you impose upon yourself from you know, psychological limits maybe. But when we're talking on the spiritual plane, there really are no limits. It's just your own fear, I guess, that keeps you from experimenting or exploring or whatever you right. want.
0: Fear, fear of the freedom,
1: perhaps. Yeah, right. There's a, another book by Eric Fromm uh, called Escape from Freedom. He wrote it in the 40s when World War II was happening. And he said, People really don't want to be free. They want to have, um, you know, an all-powerful big daddy god to tell them what to do. And then they want an all-powerful big daddy fuhrer to tell them what they do or dictator to tell them what they do. And that hasn't changed much. I think you can see in American politics uh, the same desire not to be free. And you you can see it all over the world. So I mean, Fromm's basic point was freedom is tough, and most people would rather not, not be free. I mean, you could look at the Matrix, you know, the Red Pill, Blue Pill. So most people don't want to know the truth; they just want to be comfortable in their own fiction. I get that too.
0: You know, it's 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 big to say that, uh, you know, I'm I'm going to discriminate decipher for myself. You know, that's that's a lot to take on in a way it's a lot it seems like a uh easier approach to i'm just going to follow this code this system yeah. so that i don't need to constantly be deciding all the time you know you know be, another really interesting practice that i have is like you know not putting people into the boxes of good or bad or even structures any institution i have this a belief that any per any, every person has some uh, admirable qualities, right? That I could take it and and use, uh, and in any system, any organization too. There's something that you could take and draw and, and learn from it. But I I feel the weight of that sometimes. That like you know deciphering, okay, what 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 is value here to draw that I can incorporate in into my own life? And I I get that it's easier to just you know kind of put I'm I'm in this tribe, this is my code, and that's what I'm doing and Maybe everyone else is, um, I don't know, enemy might be too harsh of a word, depending on the circumstances, but alien, not a part of it. Alien, yeah. Yeah,
1: alien. Yeah, I think you're right. When you recognize that that's what you're doing, that you're discerning for yourself, that is probably, or I would say, if you don't mind, a should, that should be accompanied by deep humility because you never really know. You know, I'm looking, to, to say i think this is this is admirable or or this this community is really power, is positive um but then i look at another say they're negative maybe i'm missing something maybe they're not negative maybe the other one isn't as positive as think it. It that's to be a a real deep sense of you know i don't know i'm doing the best i can <laughs> in the madness in which i find myself but i i can't i don't want to say i know for certain that this person uh, is bad
0: or this person is good.
1: It's it's much too, you know, mixed up than that, much more mixed up than that.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this too. I'm glad that you brought it up. Um, the humility or the practice of, uh, I don't know, I don't need to know. Um, I heard you speaking and I hear a lot of people speaking about, you know, the situation of the world and that perhaps, you know, things are gonna become very difficult. Soon, um, you know food shortages, you know lots of lots of different ideas and uh, postulizations about the the potential future, and I can see that I could see the possibility of that, but that's one area where I feel like i I need to check myself and say like I really don't know, and I'm okay with 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 not knowing um, and kind of the practice of just staying more in my lane, focusing on what I control the most directly, which is my being, and hopefully continuing to make that being you know something that's um, you know better and better um, yeah, yeah, but I, but it, but it's tricky because you know it's the mind, the human mind, I would say like can know so much, right and I'm constantly admiring the capacities of the human mind uh more and more and more. That in a way it seems like limitless like i can know everything because the human mind can know so much it, it maybe forgets that humility piece that you're speaking to um that it still only can see a very small part of the totality right
1: and and even what we see you know we're we're pattern makers which is evol- was you know it's part of our evolution if we're walking in the tall grass we're trained to see a tiger. So we can, you know, go to safety. So we're looking for patterns that say danger, danger. Uh, So we look at at the, the infinite diversity all around us and we're looking for patterns. So one of the things we do is we take human history and we put it into a neat, you know, oh, it's going from point A to point B. And this is now I don't have to think about it. It's all going to be okay, or it's all not going to be okay, or you know, whatever it is. But we impose these patterns. I I do happen to think now. I'm copying to being, you know, promoting a pattern. I think we are in the Kali Yuga, you know, you can call it what you want, a dark night of human civilization. I think that um the chickens are coming home to roost. That's why we, you know, climate change, we did that. That wasn't imposed upon us. We we created the mess that is causing the damage to the environment. We created racism, we created xenophobia, we created nationalism um, that sets one nation against another, one people against another. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't have a problem with tribe. You know, Jews are a tribe. I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with tribalism. Mm-hmm. That's why my, my new book is called Judaism Without Tribalism, not without tribe. But without tribalism, so tribalism is when your tribe becomes all important and the only good tribe and the only, you know, everything is about my tribe as opposed to some other tribe. Um, that's, that's tribalism. I have no problem with nations. I have a problem when they become national uh, nationalisms at war with other nationalism. So I think if you look at what's going on at this moment in human unfolding, we're in a very dark time. And I don't, my, you know, my humility is <clears throat> in the sense that I, I don't know what's going to happen. I can't say, I'd like to say, but I can't say we'll come out of the Kali Yuga and, you know, we'll be in the golden age again. I don't know. Some people think we're at the end of the Kali Yuga, some people at the beginning, some people in the middle. I have no idea. All I know is it's a very dark time on all levels of, of human experience. And not just humans. I mean, we're the damage that's being done to animals and to nature as a whole. So I think we have to, or I personally accept that as reality. And then the question is, like you were saying a minute ago, so how do I deal with that? Do I have to devolve along with? the devolving civilization do I have to I just the other day I got uh, a woman emailed me with a question from my column in spirituality and health magazine and she went to church I'm I'm just paraphrasing but she said she went to church the pastor gave a talk on uh psalm 23 you know thy rod and thy staff uh, they comfort me and she said her pastor said that the rod and the staff refer to modern military-style weapons and that Christians should arm themselves to prepare for the coming catastrophe, the coming Armageddon, when Christians would with these weapons would go out and begin to uh, engage in a battle with other people from other traditions or even other Christians who didn't follow this guy's tradition. That's madness, but that's what's happening. We're interpreting these texts in the most devilish, satanic ways, not everybody, but enough to create a tipping point where we're going into this dark time. So what can I do? So I think you have a choice because we're talking about freedom. I think you have a choice. You can either participate in the collapse in such a way that you close in, uh, close off, um, become fearful, angry, completely defensive, or you can collapse with, you can collapse consciously, you can collapse compassionately. In other words, you can reach out with love and caring and justice, even as the world is going through this hellish period. You don't have to be hellish yourself. And I and I think that that's what spiritual practice is for, and especially at this time, that it liberates us from having to contract and feel apart from the divine but apart from you know everything else and and contract and fear and anger and opens us up to being able to embrace the other as part of the greater capital s self um, that is the universe and all things so so that's where the choice comes that's why that's where spiritual practice comes in and you can, you can see, I'll say just one more thing about it. You can see the quality of a person's, this is judgmental, I know, but you can see the quality of a person's practice in the quality of the way they talk. There's the quality of the words they use, the quality of their engagement with other humans, with animals, with nature as a whole. If their, if their spiritual practice is, I don't know what you say, broadening their sense of consciousness and compassion, giving them greater wisdom, like the, you know, in the the Buddhists would talk about Prajna and Karuna, with the greater your wisdom, the greater your sense of compassion. If that's what the practice is doing for them, you can see it in the way they engage with one another. But if that's not what the practice is doing, if the practice is feeding the most dark, fearful aspects of our shadow self, then they act violently and 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 that's my standard, you know, it's it's not, it's not feelings, it's behavior. Is your behavior loving or is your behavior fearful and, and violent? Uh, Are you there to be what the Bible calls in Genesis 12, three, if you're there to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, all of them, not just human, or are you, you know, in your, the way you engage with people, are you uh, a curse, um, and, and that's a choice that people have to make, and spiritual practices can help you make, I would say, the right choice.
0: Thank you for sharing that. When you were talking about you know tribalism, a <laughs> uh, one of my favorite quotes came to me from Ram Das. he said. I can only afford competition when I'm firmly rooted in collaboration. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. That's nice. Yeah. That one, that awareness for me was really important when it just occurred to me that whether or not we want to believe it, we're all teammates. (laughs) Yeah. That's what Douglas,
1: Douglas Rushkoff calls team human. Yeah, we're all we're all part of the same team, but it's not just humans. I mean, everything is interdependent. Right, team Earth. team Earth. Team Team Universe, maybe. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so we are, but we don't. So many of us don't recognize that, and we see the other as other. So you know that when when um, you know you approach somebody in the Hindu tradition and you say Namaste. Um, my interpretation of it and, um, is, you know, it's usually translated, I bow to the divine within you. That's too dualistic for me. So so I, my English is, I bow to the divine that is you, right? God manifesting mm-hmm. as Avi, God manifesting mm-hmm. as Rami. I, I bow to that. It's very difficult. I was just giving a talk on this the other day, last night, and you could see people, What? No, 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 you're other, you're different. You're Jew, you're Catholic, you're something. And they just couldn't get the idea of the non-dual, capital R, reality, Brahman, aliveness, you know, Chayut in Hebrew. They they just couldn't grasp the notion that all of us and everything in the universe is a manifesting of this singular, non-dual reality. That's the big Awakening that that needs to happen as long as we think we're not part of the same thing we're we're in trouble and that's that's where the great Swamis come in that's where the great mystics come in of every religious tradition that's what they're telling us uh, in different languages and and then they give us practices don't believe me check it out for yourself do this and Like you said, if it fits and it gives you joy, then you'll do that. If not, hopefully you find another practice that does. But you can test these things out. That's the difference between religion and spirituality for me. Religion, you can't test it. No, my tradition says, our tradition as Jews says, God split the Red Sea and the people walked between the the water. Eh, Come on. Can you prove that? No, I can't prove that. So I have to just say, I believe that, which I don't. Um, but you know you uh, other but in in the spiritual end of things, you can say everything is part of this singular reality. Can you prove that? yeah, meditate, chant, do yoga practice, uh do tai chi, do qigong, i mean, do you know there's a million ways of of slipping from the narrow you know in Judaism it's called. Mohin, the continuity, narrow mind, into Mohin, the godly, spacious mind. The little self to the the little lowercase s self to the capital S self. There's ways of doing it. So if you really want to know, you can test it out. That's the big difference between spirituality and religion. You can test spirituality. You can't test religion. And when you question it, because you can't prove it, those who insist that it's true get very angry and very threatened.
0: I want to ask you about silence and words, and because it seems that perhaps today more than ever, there there's a lot of exposure to stimulation. And my friend calls uh, uh calls it binge thinking, or even and I turn binge binge listening, right? So it's just like constantly them. Thinking or um, I have some kind of input coming in, and how important do you feel that it is? I don't know for you personally, and maybe for others, to find a balance that 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 words are wonderful and great, and we can have conversations like this and throw around ideas. But you know, is the real truth there in the place beyond the words, in the silence, to to be known and experienced?
1: Yeah. So I I, I wanna. Avoid the dualism of, of words and silence. Hmm. Um, but having said that, yeah, words are problematic. I mean, words can't get at it. Words are like the, the finger pointing toward the moon. You cannot, um, I mean, that's why in the Hebrew Bible, the name of God is literally unpronounceable because in, in, in Lao Tzu says the same thing in the Tao Beijing. I don't know what it is. I'll call it Tao. But don't get hung up on Tao. The Tao that can be
0: spoken up. is not the Tao.
1: Yeah, right, exactly. So so don't get hung up on that. Because if you do, you've missed the whole point. So, but I love language. So I'm not anti-language. But silence. I mean, in the in the rabbinic Jewish rabbinic tradition, I forget which rabbi said this. He's he's talking about how great it is to you know have opportunities to learn from all these masters but he says the greatest thing is to sit in silence. And in the Bible, it says to God, it says to you, God, meaning God, to you, silence is the ultimate praise. So religions recognize the value of silence, but people find it so difficult. I, I teach at a church once a month, lovely place, and they always have a moment of silence during which they read something out loud. <laughs> you know? and, and the the leader will get up and say you know now it's time for a moment of silence and i will be reading from this poem by so and so and i'm going no that's not silence yeah. people are nervous about silence silence makes us very not all of us but makes many of us very uneasy because there's no distraction but of course your mind is constantly chatting my my um you know in addition to the the mantra japa stuff that i do i have a practice um similar to nada yoga in, in hinduism um where you listen in, in judaism it's called called the daka you listen to the still the fragile voice of silence and but you don't try to quiet your mind because now i'm just struggling with my chatter you know it's like my mind's chattering and then my super mind is going. Stop chattering! Stop chattering! It's just it's just madness. I'm just adding to the noise. So in the practice, you simply listen, and listen is a, uh, a surrendering kind of practice. You can't. Um, there's no strain when you're listening. I, I think you just sort of relax into whatever the sound is. But if you if you're listening period, I guess, just to say, if you're doing this listening practice, my experience is that there is a sound behind, uh, I I don't know how to put it. It's, It's not, it doesn't exist anywhere. It's not like a sound coming in to my right ear or my left ear. It's not a sound coming out of my head. It's not a sound coming into my head through my ears. There's just this sound now, some teachers that I've had said it's the sound of Om, but my experience is that it's not articulated at all. It's, I, I'm just going to say the hum of the universe, right? Mm. The vibration of the divine or something. And And you can hear that without having to shut down all the noise. But when I hear it, I can just sort of tune into it like on a radio. You can tune into that and then the noise just seems to stop until i've noticed stopping and then i go hey look it stopped how cool am i but there is that that sense of just being surrendered to this i don't know hum of the universe and that's an incredibly important practice for me personally Uh, you know i i root it in the the hebrew shema yisrael I don't like the traditional way of saying it. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I find that the language problematic because what we call Lord in English or Adonai in Hebrew isn't in the text. The text has the unpronounceable name of God. So you might call it Dao. You might call it just, there's a a theory that the original name of God was simply the rush of breath. You know, YHVH would just be like, and that's what they they use Mm -hmm. but who knows so there are other substitutions there are other words you can substitute for the unpronounceable so the way i i practice it's uh shema yisrael hero israel hamakom instead of adonai hamakom is an ancient rabbinic euphemism for the unpronounceable that means the place in which everything is happening uh so it's that giant you know, it's like the ocean with all the waves happening in, in, in it, uh, my, my, our aliveness, so it's, you know, listen and hear the aliveness of the divine. And if you hear it, you'll know that it's non-dual. And that's, I don't know, that's the big awakening. That's the, the insight, and I'm not not talking about enlightenment, but that because it's still on the level of the discursive. But you know that it's true. You don't believe in it. You know that it's true, and because you know it's true, um, I'd like to say you do no harm, but you do less harm, at minimum. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and that's that's why silence is so important. The other thing you can say about silence, if I can just go on one more minute here. In 1984, uh, Father Thomas Keating, uh, who created the Centering Prayer, along with uh, Father Basil uh, Pennington, Father Thomas convened the first of a 35 year long experiment that he called the Snowmass Group because his monastery was in Snowmass. And he brought 12 individuals to live with him in the monastery. I don't know if it was seven days or 10 days. The only thing we had in common is we were all contemplatives. And we had one meditative practice or another. And we would spend a lot of time in silence doing whatever meditation you were comfortable with, but not doing the same thing at the same time, just being together and doing whatever your practice was and just being silent. And when we did talk, the silence informed the conversation so that we knew that the, the talk wasn't it. So we were very gentle about how hard or, or you know, how seriously we took the language because we knew it wasn't it, that, that we were talking about the ineffable. So we lose just by starting. And that was a very profound experience. I mean, I stayed with it for not the whole 35 years, but for a few years anyway. and bringing people of different traditions together to talk isn't a bad idea but it's a shallow idea bringing people from different traditions mm. together to sit in silence that has a trend the potential to be transformative
0: Yeah. I think about, you know, the way that I used to more engage socially with other people. I think I used to feel that if there was gaps in silence, it said something negative about the experience that we were having that in order for the experience to be positive, it had to be nonstop conversation. Like we're enjoying this so much that there's no breaks in conversation. And, uh, Now, now it's different, but I I reflect on that sometimes and just, huh, why did I think that way?
1: Well, you know, and then we put ourselves in a situation like this, you know, a Zoom thing, and you don't want dead air on Zoom. (laughs) You know, you're doing a podcast or a radio show, and you got to fill that dead air. You can't, you can't have it. Just be silent. And oftentimes, when I'm doing a Zoom thing, and the host says, "Let's start with a few minutes of, of silent meditation." I usually turn my video off, but if if other people don't, you can see they're not being silent. They're mm. getting a sandwich. <laughs> they're doing different things. They're just you know just not having to pay attention to what's going on on the screen. Silence is difficult mm. um, because it 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 sort of suggests you know what if what if I can't talk after this, you know, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's like, I I was, I was in a, um, (laughs) I was with one of my teachers, his name is Prasanna and he's uh, in the Ramana Maharshi school. And I studied with him, he's not a formal teacher, he's my teacher, but he doesn't give classes or anything. But if, if you're near where he lives and you call him up and he's free, you can come over. So I was over his house one afternoon, Uh, It was about lunchtime and we were just chatting and he said, what's your spiritual practice? But he knew because he taught me to do the, I am, you know, who am I practice of Ramana Maharshi. And I said, well, one of the things I do is I, I practice, you know, who am I? And then he says, are you, I don't know what that was, but the instant he said it, Rami was gone. I, I knew that there were objects in my line of sight I mean, him. I had a friend there. There's a sofa, there's chairs, you know, the, the wall. I, I, but I didn't know what they were. I had no language for, Oh, that's Prasana or that's a chair, nothing. Um, I was aware of there being things in my line of vision, but I had no names for them at all. I was, but I didn't even have a name for not knowing the name. This is all constructed afterwards. There was just this profound, I don't know if I even wanna say silence, just ending of all speech. I don't have any way of saying it. So we'll say silence. I was in this state of profound silence. And when I came out, I was incredibly self-conscious of overweight. Okay, that's what, that's a chair. Don't forget because I had all of that was wiped away. And there's this fear that now I can, I'll never talk. So I think a lot of fa- people find silence threatening um, because there's no distraction and there's no way to fill up your, your head with stuff. And then you, you,
0: maybe you panic like there's nothing there. Yeah. I mean, it makes me just think about change. And that there's a lot of fear around change. Like I'm operating generally on one gear and to shift to another gear, you know, I'm afraid, will I be able to get back to that gear that I'm so comfortable with? You know, and around Mm -hmm. meditation, I think this this is a very big thing, right? Like if I'm constantly thinking, thinking I'm in this personality being that I am, if I lay that down, you know, and really let it go, Will I be able to come back? You know, like what you're saying, no? Or I don't know what's going to happen if right. if if I do that.
1: Of course, then the question that's, is, who's laying it down?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, that's. Always, you're asking, yeah. If you, if you're asking me the question to that, it's it's an aspect of the divine. You know, I've heard right. you, and this is the the non-dual perspective. Is that and. And how does this change my whole life when I see myself as a part of the divine too? It could be a very uncomfortable thing. I've lived most of my life, you know, the idea of, of me being an aspect of God is, you know, somewhat blasphemous perhaps. Sure. You know, so to to, to, to to see that, you know, how does how does that change me? <laughs> Can that yeah. change us seeing that we are God? And I'd say that that would have, uh, that has uh, an amazing effect potentially, yeah. you know, because, I mean, because it's true, right? yeah it's true,
1: but you don't want people don't necessarily want to admit or or experience that it's true
0: yeah yeah it's threatening i I want to ask you about gratitude and and the practice and you know it, i've i kind of even see my life actually i would say as as before gratitude and after gratitude because it's changed me so much, and I see now that it's Really, the antidote for fear. And I'll be afraid all the time, things will come up. But to really be grateful, it, it has the effect of totally turning the table on my perspective of life. So instead of, you know, fearing the future, fearing my death or what's going to happen, instead it's, oh my gosh, I'm so fortunate that I've had all of these experiences in my life. Like I'm already full. If, my life ends now, you know, I would like to have more life. I would like to have more experience, but if it ends now, I'm still grateful for what I've been given. And what's curious to me is like, what is the potential power of human beings behaving in that kind of way? Like from, from that energy, from the energy of a fullness and gratitude, what actions are going to be taken as opposed to um, the perspective that, you know, I I need to hold on. I need more. I'm afraid of it ending.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's interesting that you bring together fear and gratitude because I'm afraid of losing what I've got, or afraid of getting something I don't want. Uh, but real gratitude is being grateful for whatever you get. So I, mm. I you know, whatever happens. So I love the Taoist um, notion. I think it's Taoist of um, it's in qigong there's a stance that you take when you're when you're standing up your legs are slightly apart, but you have your hands like this i mean lower than what i'm raising you know, i'm raising them for the camera and you just stand like this and it's called monk begging for rice and the way I was taught it it's it's becoming it's it's making yourself available for the ten thousand joys and the ten thousand sorrows of everyday living and can you be grateful for all of them? Or do or you gonna go, oh, thank you for the joys, but no, I'll, I thanks, I don't need the sorrows. You, you can't avoid either one, but can you have that attitude of gratitude, which is a little corny way of saying it, so that you can, you're open to whatever the next moment brings? And that requires, I, I would think, I'm gonna contradict myself in a second, but I was gonna say that requires a deep fearlessness but fear is also something that you get. So, you know, Mm. if, if you're afraid, then you're afraid, but, but I think if you practice, um, you know, being open to the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, then fear is just another thing. And so is fearlessness. It's just another thing. Thank you for the fear. Thank you for the fearlessness. Thank you for the headache. Thank you for the, you know, something else. Um, and that to me is gratitude practice. It's being able to say, and who knows, you know, I don't know who you want to say you're saying it to, but, you know, for me, I, I always say it to the Divine Mother. So, you know, I will thank her for whatever is, you know, tossed my in my direction uh, from moment to moment. Uh, I'm not 100% with it, but that's the idea. Can I be grateful for whatever? is presented to me uh, and if if i can then i think i can deal with it more compassionately whether it's a personal thing or interpersonal thing i can deal with it more compassionately than if um, i'm afraid of what i'm getting and then i have to withdraw because i'm got, i gotta find some place to hide i don't want this so i'm gonna get away from that but if i don't discriminate and I'm open to the whole thing, and I realize that the whole thing is the divine mother, mm-hmm. then there isn't anything to fear. Because even the negative, I, now I'm making this up, right? It's just a theory here, but you could say even the negative is given in love. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I could accept that or not accept that, but my, my assumption, I, I do think that while she gives you, the ten thousand joys and ten thousand sorrows. I don't think anything that happens is malicious. It's just the way nature is so constructed that this is gonna, this is gonna happen. The conditions are right that this is going is what's gonna happen, and then you're simply surrendered to it, or you fight against it. But I prefer the former if it's possible.
0: Yeah, I prefer it too. And it's making me think about previously what we were talking about, you know, in terms of the state of the the world and Kali Yuga, um, global warming and xenophobia and racism and all of the, all of these things. Like, you know, is that outside of the the acceptance, the non-dual perspective, or does I'm very very curious about this. Like from my human perspective, mind like. These are not good things at all. These are things that should be changed. But I think the real question to me is, how are they changed? Yeah. Are they changed from the perspective that this is terrible, some, something happened in the past that shouldn't have happened, and we have to do something about this now? Or it, is it changed from this is accepted because it's simply because it happened? And from that place of acceptance, then I can have humility with my human mind and still say I'm accepting it. But there's something in my heart, my my feeling that says that this is that that we could do better, or this isn't right, or we can shift into um, something different.
1: Yeah, I think you know one metaphor for, or analogy for this is the difference between Aikido and Karate. So in in Karate. When someone throws a punch at you, you're you're going to block it and then hit them back. And it really is, though I'm sure skill levels are are important. But if you're matched in skill, it's going to be the stronger person. Whereas in Aikido, you don't strike back, you don't turn the other into an opponent, which is sort of what Karate does. You you, it's a dance. And so if your partner is moving in this direction, you can just join with that person and let them move in that direction until they fall over on the floor. If I, so, so I'm looking at climate change, or I'm looking at the violence in, in uh, you know, the gun violence and all of that in the United States, I can arm myself and I, you know what, I'm gonna shoot first. And that's how I'm gonna deal with it. I mean, you could do that. That's maybe the karate method. <laughs> But can I embrace the negative and then move it into the light without what did you say? Ram, you,
0: the Ramdas quote, collab uh, competition. I can, only, I can only afford competition when I'm firmly rooted in collaboration.
1: Yeah, right. So you work with, you collaborate with the energies of the moment, but you have a direction. So it's not, it's not like. Okay, it wants to be dark and I'm gonna no, let it be dark. It's that it wants to, it wants to go in this direction. I'm gonna help it go in this direction through the dark into, into the light. Um, I mean it's sort of like a Tong Len thing maybe in Tibetan Buddhism, where you breathe in the dark and you breathe out the light, but you don't resist it. So my my problem with climate change and, and the way part of me wants to deal with it, it's it's angry, it's mm-hmm. resisting. It's othering, and that's not gonna get us anywhere. So I've gotta find a different way to engage when, I mean, both with people who will maybe have a different position on climate, but I was thinking just with the way I deal with my own life and, and the contribution I, uh, I make to greenhouse gas, I, you know, to say, okay, I'm gonna cut out greenhouse gases in my life. I, I don't, that's just another, Oh, I don't know, that's just another way of distracting yourself from what you're really going to do, because you're not going to really do that. But if you have some compassion for yourself, and an understanding of what's causing the problem, you can make small changes that are more collaborative uh, than, than they are confrontational. So I don't know if I'm making any sense, but but this, this it, in a sense, it all comes back to gratitude. Can I be uh, grateful and accepting of, of reality as it is, and then work with it as I find it um, with a goal. I mean, it's not like uh, I'm not without a goal. So my, my goal, my purpose is to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. My perfect, my purpose is to, to create a world that is thriving for all beings. Then can I, can I move in that direction? Cause that's the direction I want to go without being, Confrontational without being violent. I think it's possible. It's not certainly isn't easy for me, but I think it's possible, and and that would be what we're talking about. If if I could be that accepting without being, um, I don't know what you call it. Maybe back to your idea of selfless. You know, being a pushover because being knocked over by it. I accept the reality as it is, and then I work with it to bring it to this this what I would consider a better place. Um, but if I'm, if I'm not grateful, then I'm just going to be antagonistic to whatever it is that's coming.
0: Yeah, I see that to myself. I see that myself, too. It's like th- it almost feels like nature, you know, n- nature speaks to me and it says, you know, I'll give you all of these things, this abundance. Um, just say thank you and th- say thank you for yourself you know even more than than me is it it feels so good you know and I, th- I think that's that's the weird thing about the time we're living in a little bit maybe is that we have so much on like the material plane like that even the notion of gratitude is perhaps overwhelming to really dive into the fact that i you know have food whenever i want it and water and shelter and all that it's like it's so immense and i feel overwhelmed by that it's like where do i even start so i'm not going to even play the game
1: yeah, I mean, there's that. I mean, that's a tremendous privilege that some of us have and, and so many of us don't. But there's also, and, and this goes back maybe where we started over an hour ago about Shabbat. There's also this fact that I don't have what I need. I don't have enough. I have um, an iPhone 13, but I got to get the 14, you know? I have the, I forgot what they just came out with, Uh, The M2 chip in the new redesigned MacBook. And I only have, I don't have a MacBook, but you know, I I have an old MacBook. So I got to get the new MacBook. The entire system in which those of us who live in the post-industrial West, the entire system is to keep you wanting. Mm. And if you really feel gratitude for what you have, you discover you don't need a lot more, if any more, and maybe you need even less than what you've got. So, but that's not the system. The system is you have to have more, you have to have more, and you have to have the newest thing. So we have this planned obsolescence, there's nothing wrong with an iPhone 10. But you got to get the 14, because otherwise, you're out of the loop, right? So It's all designed to do that. So Shabbat, going back where he started, is a way to break that cycle. Gratitude is a way to break that cycle. Um, Without having to say, I'm going to live simpler. Because that's already a challenge. You know? Okay, okay, we're going to do that. And I'm going to go to war with myself over simplicity. But if I can be grateful for what I have, you know, what's... um. uh, i can't she wrote the joy of tidying up i can't remember her oh
0: name. marie Quand, uh, Yeah, Marie, marie Kondo. Kondo. yeah 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 um
1: you know i i liked what you know I, I read the first book um and and i i started doing that looking at the things in my life and saying does this bring me joy and if it did i would keep it and if it didn't you know i would i would pass it on i mean my first go around my mm-hmm. wife was very helpful. She discovered that everything that brought me joy was stuff that I owned and everything that I wanted to get rid of was stuff she owned. And I said, okay, okay, I'm overdoing it. But, you know, if it brings you joy, then you don't have to keep replacing it. And then, and then if you tie that to the Japanese idea of wabi-sabi, which is another phenomenal Japanese insight, wabi-sabi being the beauty of the imperfect, So you don't, you have a cracked, I forget what this is called in Japan, but if you have a cracked piece of pottery, they put it back together with gold instead of glue. And so you end up with this gorgeous, you know, cup with beautiful gold veins in it, which is how you hold the cracks together. And that's another beautiful appreciation of the broken, you know, Leonard Cohen's, everything is broken. You know, that's how the light gets in. And Dylan also talks about, has a song about everything is broken. Um, But wabi-sabi is just the natural wear and tear on things. And you look at it, something said, boy, it's old. And it's gorgeous because it's old. We don't like old people. We don't like old things. We want everything to be new. But really, if you can feel gratitude for what you have in your life and, and appreciate the imperfections of those things, whether you're talking about relationships, you're talking about an old piece of furniture. There's you you realize, I think, and I'm generalizing, but you realize I don't need to replace the the relationship, I don't need to replace the furniture, the imperfection is part of what makes it precious. Mm -hmm. So I think all of that stuff is comes through in a spiritual uh, when you're living when you're working in that spiritual realm.
0: Uh, Rabbi Rami, thank you so much for for spending time. Um, Is there any projects that you have that upcoming that you're excited about or any new books that you'd like to mention or people are interested in finding out more about you, the best way to do that?
1: Well, the best way to find out more about me is through my uh, website. You can go to rabbirami.com or you can go to oneriverfoundation.org. They're both places that I, that my stuff is there. I do have a new book out, Judaism Without Tribalism. Uh, you can get that at a local bookstore or you know through Amazon. Uh, but you know what the things that just excite me, uh, because I'm always writing, I'm always reading things, the things that excite me are the things around what we've been talking about. And those things especially when they're when they're associated with the Divine Mother. I just feel called to her, um, primarily in a in a Jewish form, but not exclusively. So that's I mean that's where my my heart is at least at the moment.
0: What what, what do you mean? If you could elaborate a little bit when you when you speak about the divine mother, uh, what what are you referring to? So my,
1: my my experience of God, whatever that is, is feminine. And as such, it and, and every tradition has this, but in Judaism, when the rabbis would experience the presence of the divine, they call, they spoke of something called Shekhinah. And Shekhinah is literally means the presence of God, but it's a feminine term and it's spoken of as she and her, not it or or he. And you have to remember this is an incredibly patriarchal society. These were all men and yet their experience of god was feminine when they heard the voice of god you would expect given that they're all men in this patriarchal tradition they would hear charlton heston's voice you know they'd hear <laughs> the voice of an alpha male but they didn't when they hear the voice of god they speak of it as bat bat kol kol bat like bat mitzvah the daughter uh, of the commandments. Bat means daughter, Kol means voice. So they would hear the voice of the daughter and they knew it was God speaking to them. So even thousands of years ago, these uh, rabbis were having experiences of the divine feminine. And, and so do I. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 8, verse 22, all of a sudden, this woman starts speaking to you. And she says, her name is Chachma, Sophia in the Greek, wisdom in English. And she says, she's the first manifesting of the divine. And through her, she builds the universe. And she delights in humankind. And then as she moves into chapter eight, we learn that she sets up, you know, we might say an ashram, or a lodge, or a temple uh, with seven pillars. We don't know what they are. There's all kinds of interpretations but the bible doesn't say and she inside her ashram temple lodge she prepares a feast an actual physical food feast but also the feast of wisdom and then she has apostles disciples who are all women and she sends them out throughout the the world to call people to her wisdom feast and there's a whole long jewish tradition about about the divine feminine Mostly you don't hear about it because rabbis in conventional synagogues aren't usually drawn to it. But um, there's there's a very rich tradition about it. I've written two books about her. I have a third that I haven't published. Um, but I began to experience her uh, in the 90s, early 90s maybe. I'm bad with my own history, but I began to experience her. I would see her, I would hear her voice um, and and she, is a major part of my life. And chanting her name, Chokhmah, is a major part of my daily spiritual practice. So, you know, what, what it was for the ancient rabbis, is, was it comparable to what I'm experiencing? I don't know. But the fact that they experience God and use feminine language to articulate it says there's something going on there that you don't normally expect and you don't normally hear in the all almost all masculine language of the hebrew prayer book this is very very different i mean i could talk for an hour about this but hopefully that gives you some some idea
0: yeah i I'd never heard about that before and it resonates strongly yeah makes sense oh. thank you so much Really, Bobby, thank really you this is you. great yeah.
1: this is great always to help out with yogaville
0: thanks for listening if you've enjoyed this content and think others might as well please feel free to share and subscribe